Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. On this episode of the Behind the Mask podcast show, we sit down with Colonel Gregory D. Gatson. Yes, the Purple Heart Award winner, Distinguished Service Medal, three bronze stars, all of that. He talks about his life during the military, his tragic accident in Iraq, his contributions to society now that he's out of the military, last but not least, his legacy. How does he want to be remembered after it's all over with, said and done? Stay tuned. Let's go behind the mask. Welcome back to another special edition. You know what? This is not a special edition. This is the Veterans Day, Veterans Week edition of the Behind the Mask podcast. Yes, I am your host, Takeo Spikes, joined alongside by my co-host, better known as the... Your favorite plus-size model, Tucson Reyes, in the building. What's happening, too? What's good, brother? How's everything? Hey, man, like you always say, it's another great day to be living on this side of the soil. And uh, we have a special guest, too. I know you're excited to get him on, right? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, before we bring him on, man, we got to give... We got to give him his credit because his credit is definitely deserved. Listen, Distinguished Service Medal, two legions of merit, three bronze stars. That's right, three bronze stars, a purple heart, and several meritorious service medals. Listen, y'all give it up for our outstanding guest, Colonel Gaston. <laughs> Thank you, gentlemen. I appreciate the, the warm welcome and enthusiastic welcome. Thank you. Yeah, you deserve it. And it, it's, it's quite an honor to have you on the show. This is the week. It's Veterans Week. Veterans Day is coming upon us soon. And uh, we wanted to give you credit and just say thank you for everything that you've done and, and really all of your other colleagues who really allowed us the opportunity to be able to put this show on for you today. Well, thank you. And uh, we appreciate it. Um, just kind of a point that you, you bring up there is think about um, the fact that uh, I hope we all voted or participated in a voting process. And, and that's, uh, that's uh, you know, a fundamental part of, uh, of exercise in a democracy. And, and, um, and we've, you know, defended that right for, for more than 240 years, so thank you. The NFL season is in full swing. You might not be at the game this year, but you still can be in on the action at Bet Online. From game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props, Bet Online gives you more options to wager than any place online. And there's always the online casino as well. It never closes. So head to betonline.ag today and take advantage of all of the great sign-up bonuses. Again, that's betonline.ag and sign up today. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. Well, without, fernal, without further ado, Colonel Gaston, we'll jump right into it. Right. Um, did a lot of research now because we were excited to have you. Didn't realize, I, I heard rumors of, you playing on the pig, playing with the pigskin on the football field. You were a high school football standout. And I want to know what made you to decide to attend West Point and then later join the military. Well, um, you know, like many, uh, like many young men that, that play in high school, um, I certainly had dreams of playing in college and, and ultimately going to the pros and, and, and being a champion. And, uh, I was a, you know, I'm I'm from Tidewater, Virginia. Went to high school in Chesapeake, Virginia. I was a, I was an all-state uh, football player. Actually, captain of my uh, of my uh, my half of the state's uh, all-star team. And so, you know, I thought I had done um, and prepared myself to, to to continue to play football at the next highest level to to, to pursue that dream. Um, 
for for whatever reasons, I think probably mostly my size and maybe my speed. Uh, I I wasn't uh, I didn't I didn't earn that opportunity. I don't want to say I wasn't given, but I didn't earn that opportunity. And and so, um, you know, toward the end of the recruiting season, actually, well into I think January or or uh, February of my senior year in high school, I I still didn't have any place to go and uh, I. Um, guy named Ted Gill, maybe you guys have, have run into him or recognize the name. He came to my high school to recruit uh, um, a friend of mine who was an offensive lineman to, uh, to go to West Point where, where Ted was uh, on the staff. And, and my, uh, my head coach at uh, Indy River, John Dukes, uh, you know, told him about me. And, and so we ended up, Tracy and I ended up going up to West Point uh, for my fifth visit, fifth official visit. And I hadn't really, I didn't know what West Point was about. Um, I think the only really serious question that I um, had was that they, did they play Division One A football? And and because uh, that's what I wanted to play, I wanted to play with the with the best. And, and they said, "Yep." Yeah, and I just said I was coming. So uh, so I didn't have uh, designs uh, or thoughts about serving the military. Um, I did realize that um, that making this decision to to go to the, the military academy was not going to allow me to play football at the professional level, or didn't didn't anticipate it at least. But I and so I kind of went there with a chip on my shoulder because I wanted to prove that I could uh, I could play at the highest level. So and that was my only opportunity. That's that's an interesting story, and funny thing about that is. My senior year in high school, I was um, I already had a scholarship to Ole Miss, right, to play football. Right. However, a friend of mine came uh, to my summer job, and we went to a recruiting office. So he signed up. He said, two, I'm going to the Marines." I'm like, "Okay, that's cool." He said, "Just come with me." So I go to the recruiting office with him, and um, as we're there, he's signing the papers, and I'm just watching him. Like, "Wow, you really doing going through with this?" And the recruiter's like, looks at me. He's like, "What about you? What are you doing?" I was like. Oh, I'm, I'm going back to work. <laughs> he's like, he's like what you, no, what are you doing with your future? I'm like, uh, probably go to college. He's like, well, we could pay for your college scholarship, et cetera. I'm like, I already have a scholarship. No, I'm not interested. But right. went on to play football. But in that same context, how difficult is it for a young man or a young woman who has a, a different career path in mind to say, you know, I, you know what? I want to go ahead and serve my country and join the military. Well, uh, yeah, great question. Thank you. I think, um, you know, a lot of I, I get parents, I get uh, young, you know, young men and women that ask me about serving um, in the military. And and uh, I guess my counsel that I share with them is this. It's 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 almost like party. It's like your education. Um, there's only a there's only a brief window that you you're eligible to continue to serve to serve in our, in our armed forces. And. Uh, again, like your diploma, like your education is something that you have with you the rest of your life. And um, and most, if not all, um, that have had a chance to serve, it, it, you know, it's the camaraderie that you and I know from the, the gridiron. Um, it's very similar in, in serving uniform. And, and it's, again, it's something you have the rest of your life. And uh, what's two or three years to uh, to mature. I think a lot of times, you know, college students, we go and we spend all mom and dad's extra money changing majors and all that kind of stuff. And, and on a couple, a few years of maturity in the military on the government's dime. And then, oh, by the way, um, uh, Uncle Sam can cover your education. It really is uh, not a bad, not a bad path to follow. Definitely not a bad path to follow as we all have loved ones who are possibly active in the military or previously been in the military. But looking at your resume, you, you stayed in for over 26 years, your service. And what was surprising and also very impressive was that throughout the 26 years, you were involved in every major conflict over the last two decades. I think about Operation Desert Shield that was in Kuwait. I also think about Operation Joint Forge in Bosnia, Afghanistan, Operation Iraq and, you know, for freedom. So, you know, when I look at that, 
your life changed on May 7th, 2007. What can you tell us about that day that you can remember? Well, absolutely. Um, I remember that day um, because I knew when that day started out, I had, uh, you know, I had some meetings and I had some engagements that I had with some Iraqi leaders. Um, but ultimately, I knew kind of at the end of the day that I was going to attend a memorial service for two young men who were in a sister battalion from Fort Riley, Kansas, where where I had deployed from. Uh, First Lieutenant Ryan Jones and Specialist Sunson um, had been killed uh, uh, three or four days uh, earlier. And um, and the leaders in my brigade um, and anybody that can make it, we were going to pay our respects for these young men. Um, and I remember that as I, as I talked to you about it, I remember just kind of, kind of thinking about, um, how these, how these young men would never see their dreams realized and, and really, uh, what their families were going through and, and, and the huge sacrifice. And, uh, and I quite honestly too, started to kind of question it. It was, Iraq was extremely violent, uh, and those are early months of 2007. And I just wondered if if this sacrifice, quite honestly, was worth it. Um, I was heading back to, um, to my headquarters in a four-vehicle patrol. I was the third of four vehicles, um, you know, traveling on, a, on what, you know, would account, uh, if you can imagine, any interstate highway. Um, we, were, we would travel in this herringbone formation, so we weren't lined up you know, moving out down the road as fast as it can. And and that's when my vehicle was hit by a roadside bomb. It was command wire detonated. So it wasn't it wasn't the fact that I ran over. It was the fact that someone actually had eyes on my vehicle and, and decided to to take uh to try to take my vehicle out. The uh the blast lifted my fifteen thousand pound vehicle off the road and it ejected me out of the vehicle uh where I can remember uh you know, vividly flying through the air and hitting the ground and coming to a rolling stop on my back. So uh, this was the second time um, in four months that my vehicle had been hit by a roadside bomb. So I knew what it was. Um, but this time I obviously was wounded and, and I knew it was serious because I couldn't get up. I couldn't move. And the last thing that I would uh, that you know, and I said was, I, God, I don't want to die in this country. And I was out. Um, my teammates, I call them my teammates, men like First Sergeant Frederick Johnson. Uh, he was a senior non-commissioned officer in my, uh, in my patrol. He would be the first to arrive at my vehicle. And, uh, and actually was the one that uh, recognized that I wasn't there. And uh, he found me about a football field, uh, away from where my vehicle came to a stop. I was already unconscious and he started to resuscitate me. And, uh, and one of my junior soldiers, a uh, uh, 19-year-old kid named uh, Eric Brown would put the tourniquets on my legs, a fact that the doctors say saved my life. Um, I can keep going if you, um, or if you want. So, um, Ultimately, um, just to kind of give you uh, and the doctors credit this young man for saving my life. Um, uh, that night, I would go through uh, uh, hundred and twenty nine pints of blood. I mean, the average human holds between six and eight pints. I went through hundred and twenty nine pints. I died uh, five or six times that evening. Wow. And um, um, I'm here by the grace of God. And uh, just to kind of give you a again, a perspective of uh, how difficult uh, those months were. I can tell you that in the month of May of 2007 alone, um, 131 U.S. service members would pay in full measure, would pay with their lives. So it was violent. And we continue to, to hear you talk in such detail about your time serving. Um, it just puts things in perspective, particularly uh, with us as athletes, we complained about something simple like training camp, like two a days, but you had to literally put your life on the line every day for your country. Uh, as I mentioned, my friend, he served in the military. He used to send me letters saying it was so, it was so descriptive to show that 
in Iraq or Afghanistan tasted like battery acid and you're dealing with triple digit weather every day. Yep. Like it's just the imagery is unfathomable. But to to your point, your leadership role, your strength, you could have very well said, you know what, I'm done, but you continue to serve in active duty after your injuries. I ask you why. Well, uh, I, again, I appreciate the the thoughtful questions. Um, you know, I I, um, I I would tell you. So I got I, I was evacuated out of Iraq on the uh, on the on the eighth of May, and I would arrive at Washington D.C. at Walter Reed on the uh, on the eleventh of May, and I still had my legs, uh, but they were obviously. Uh, very badly damaged. I was. I had to go through surgery every other day to clean out my wounds and repair my blood vessels. Uh, one week after getting back at uh, at, at Walter Reed, uh, the left the blood vessels in my left leg could no longer sustain blood flow, and I started to bleed to death while I was in the intensive care. Uh, the ICU nurse literally pulled off her belt and put a field expedient tourniquet on my leg. And the, they took me into surgery and amputated uh, my left leg above the knee to save my life. Well, the next day, the same thing happened uh, to my right leg. But they were able to pull a vein actually from my left bicep and put in my right leg. And they were able to save my right leg. Well, by this point time i was uh i was out of an induced coma and i could communicate with the doctors um ultimately i made the decision for the doctors to uh, amputate my right leg above the knee um i a i i just figured that my my quality of life would be better in two prosthetics than the than in one prosthetic and a leg that was never gonna you know ultimately wasn't gonna work as it was intended and I just wanted to move on. So uh, on the 24th of May, uh, the docs, in fact, uh, amputated uh, my right leg above the knee. Well, when I came out of surgery, I got some more good news. And I say that with a little uh, tongue in cheek, but um, they had to, uh, they, they re had re-x-rayed my right arm before I went in for that amputation. And when I came out, they told me that my right arm was broken above the elbow and the radial head of my elbow were broken and it would require surgery uh, to repair it. So um, about a week later, I would have that surgery on my arm. And unfortunately, um, due to some complications in that surgery, I, I sustained ulnar nerve and radial nerve damage. The ulnar nerve damage uh, to this day still prevents me from really utilizing all the fingers on my, on my right hand. And at the time, the radial nerve damage uh, prevented me from picking up my wrists. I was also dealing with uh, a heterotopic ossification where my body was producing too much calcium because of the blast injury and it caused my right arm to lock up at the elbow. So I was functionally down to one limb my non-dominant left arm and hand was all I could use. And uh, I, I, I tell you, that was the straw that kind of broke my broke the camel's back. And I just wanted to give up. I wanted to quit. And, and I tried. Um, but uh, that's when I found out kind of who I was. You know, not that you go around trying to, I don't know, sort out your character or whatever. But um, I, I think as an athlete, as a football player, um, I never quit my life, and and even in these moments, um, I couldn't quit, and and so that's when I decided uh, that um, you know what uh, I you know I kind of say this with a little tongue in cheek, but you know the army wasn't paying me for how fast I could run; they paid me for what was here and what was here, and so I I I began to to push back and say you know I, I want to serve and. Um, I can, I'll do whatever it is you want me to do. Um, but I'm not done yet. And, uh, I was fortunate and blessed that the army, um, uh, gave me that opportunity. Well, Colonel Gatson, you are the epitome of courage, perseverance, heart, integrity. What, what messages do you have for people facing adversity or difficult situations in their own lives? Well, um, I, I, I think I try to boil it down to, uh, uh, to, to really kind of 
um, three things. I think it's important, um, you know, as an athlete to be present. You know, you, you cannot play the last play if you screwed it up and you can't play the next play. Yeah, you have to be present. And, and, and I think athletes, is particularly when, you know, we're performing, when you're performing, you, you, you epitomize that, that idea of, of, of being present. And then, and then what that, when you're, when you are present, I believe that allows you to be your best. And, and conversely, if you're, if you're still thinking about a play you screwed up, then you're not going to be your best. Or if you're worried about, you know, whether or not you're going to win the game, then you're not going to be your best. You've got to learn to give your all and be present and be your best. And then I, I think you can, and if you allow, if you can do those things and you can be at peace because you can accept whatever happens to you in life and, uh, and whatever the results are. And so um, I, I uh, in various forms, I try to, I try to get that message across is look, um, we, we control very little in life. And you, at the end of the day, um, I recognize that I'm very blessed, um, but I can only f- focus my energy on, on being present and trying to achieve my best. Yeah, you made the analogy talking about how it is. You have to go to the next play. You really can't relish and sit back and think of what it could have been or what you did wrong. You have to continue to progress. I remember reading the paper, and this is going back to 07. And um, I think the sporting world, all of the sporting world, had the first introduction of Colonel Gregory Gasson. When you went into the Giants locker room and you spoke to the team, what was that gap of need that you saw when you went in to speak to the guys, because I remember Michael Strahan was on that team, O.C. Uminyor, uh Eli Manning. What was that gap of need that you saw that you could feel and be able to give them some, some good advice that they can take on throughout the entire season? Eventually, they end up winning the Super Bowl that year, too, as well. Right. So um, you, you give me um, way too much credit for, for understanding a need. Uh, first of all, I have to acknowledge my my classmate and my former teammate at West Point, Mike Sullivan, who was a who was a coach on the Giants. He was a wide receivers coach, uh, Plexico Burris's coach, in fact, um, and uh, David. Uh, I don't know if David Ty- and David Tyree's coach. Um, and Mike had come to visit me in the hospital in Walter Reed, and the Giants that season had started out zero and two, and they were coming to Washington D.C. to play the Redskins. Who were two and zero, oh. and and so Mike obviously saw something in me and felt that I had something to share. Uh, this was just four months after being wounded, and as much as I was talking to the Giants, I was honestly to Kale probably talking to myself. Um, uh, this was the first time that I'd ever spoken to to anybody outside the military, and um, and. Um, I, I really just tried to sh- share uh, what I, I just shared with you a few minutes ago about, um, you know, being your best and, and, and counting on each other. You know, you know, we, we think about the fans and the, all the other kind of things that are, are kind of tied to the game. But but it's about those 11 guys on the field. And and um, and I just really tried to to connect that ex- that same experience of of you know why we fight. I mean, uh, mom and dad and apple pie, all that stuff sounds you know um, important and, and it has its role. But those are the furthest things from our mind when we're out on that battlefield, and uh, it's it's about battling for one another. And and I tried to again, I tried to convey that. Look, get rid of all that other kind of stuff. Play the play you're in, you know, do your best and, and, and put it all on the line. It's, you know, it's, you know, tomorrow's not guaranteed. And, and I'm i I'm an example of that. And speaking of things that are tied to the game, uh, you see athletes now really using their platform to speak of uh, injustices outside of the game, things that are dear to their heart. Right. Yep. Um, 
you're on record. You disagree with Colin Kaepernick and some others for actually taking a knee, not standing for the anthem uh, a few years back. But you also said, uh, I defended the right, uh, the people's right for freedom of speech. So I don't agree with Kaepernick's decision, but I have to respect it because if I don't, then I don't respect our Constitution. So with all that's going on today and you can you continue to see athletes using their platform, some do kneel for the anthem. Has your opinion of that changed any? And, and what are your thoughts on that today? Well, um, so, yeah, great question. And I, I appreciate the, the chance to kind of uh, kind of address that. So uh, the, the, the main reason I, I, I say I probably was uh, 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 against the kneeling is because it had become hijacked. His message was being lost. It had been it had been it it become an emotional um, uh, uh, fire point, and 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 why he was and why he was doing that was was totally and emotionally tied up into what he was doing instead of what he was trying to and what he was trying to uh, bring attention to. But but again, that being said, he has that right, and um, and if it got us the if it but and he had to make that personal decision. Um, and, uh, you know, he's, he's, uh, um, so look, I'm, I'm probably twice as old as, 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 uh, Colin and you know, you can, we can argue maybe a little wiser. Sometimes you gotta, uh, you gotta give a little the, you know, you know, I say live to fight for another day. And, um, and so I, I, um, um, it's been a few years uh, obviously between what he was doing and where, and where we're at now. And, uh, and, and, and many can have, uh, many can acknowledge, you know, from Roger Goodell on down that, uh, it, uh, it was, uh, misinterpreted and his message lost and, and Colin Kaepernick, unfortunately is not in the league. And, and we can all kind of talk about, uh, the reasons for that, but, um, you know, I, I wasn't in his shoes, and and, and I, uh, I I have a I have a different perspective. I want to hold our country accountable as much as anybody, and um, and you know, again, I would choose a different way. Colonel, that it's a good point because everybody has different perspectives, and when you look at sport, when you look at politics. The one thing that they do have in common is that they bring people together to have tough conversations. Right. And one of the things I remember vividly having a conversation in the locker room with one of my teammates was uh, it was brought to my attention that the active duty military, they're not supposed to be, well, they're supposed to be nonpartisan. Right. However, at the end of the day, the president is the commander in chief. So, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful to be able to ask you this. And, and so I want to ask you, do you think it is difficult for the nation's men and women in the armed service to be political during these times, knowing that the difference of opinion is easily out there of, of what they see? Yeah, so um, I, I don't think so. I think uh, I think we've had. Uh, I still connect with folks in uniform, and I I ask them the, the difficult questions, and and uh, with respect to you know the commander in chief, and and uh, and so first of all, we we have an opportunity to 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 demonstrate and to voice our our grievances. What we can't do is we can't do it in uniform because that's our our official. Um, capacity in the government, but as private citizens, we, we can uh, uh, voice our um, uh, our opinions and 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 and, and concerns. And so, because um, that's a right of every American, we just uh, we can't do it in uniform because we represent uh, uh, represent the government. Um, I, I can say that um, that um, you know. The current president has 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 challenged um, uh, our thoughts in the military, and and I think I've seen a couple of surveys that have have shown that um, it has paid. He has paid a price. Um, his his popularity or his his uh, 
has gone down since uh, being president with those in uniform. So, um, so I, I'm, I say I'm glad to see that because I'm glad to see that um, people have kind of thought about and and recognize, um, um, you know, the the, the positions that uh, he's taken that are not that are not uh, that are not tied with the values, the same values. I, I would I I've often said that. In uniform, if I had said the same things that he says as as uh, it, from the, from the office of the presidency, I would have been relieved. I would have been thrown out of the army. And so there, uh, many of those things are inconsistent with our values. But but we didn't take an oath to the president. We took an oath to support and defend the Constitution. And um, and so um, at the end of the day, I, I'm I'm really proud, and I continue to be proud that our military has um, uh, done a pretty good job, not a perfect job, but done a pretty good job of continuing to, to, to manage that fine line that, uh, you know, this president has, has uh, taken us toward. Now that you're retired, and I would say somewhat out of the system, what are your personal thoughts, uh, if you would like to share, when it comes to just looking at this election time right now? And you see a lot of cities are boarding up stores. And this is unprecedented. Right. I've never seen it throughout my 43 years of living. So do you? what are your personal thoughts on that as you see where we come from to this point to where we are and where we're hoping to go? Right. Yeah. Um, I, I did. Uh, Takeo, I agree. I think it's almost it's almost kind of sad but I think it's also revealing um, that we're in a place that we are having to consider that we're, I mean, we are as a nation, we're supposed to be uh, the example for the rest of the world on how to, on how to, uh, to have peaceful elections and, and, and uh, peaceful changes of, of power. And we're concerned that, uh, that that's not going to happen, and so I think it has uh, it has been a wake up call uh, for us to kind of uh, uh, evaluate ourselves as a as uh, as individuals, but as a nation on where we are and and where we want to be and what it's going to take to move our uh, to to get back to a place where we don't have to do these kind of things, uh, you know. I will tell you that, um, you know, through this journey, I, I, I think sometimes we want to, we want to be on the side of, of right and we, and, and, and get in our corners and say, look, I'm right and you're wrong, but I'm not sure, honestly, I'm not sure that's the approach. I mean, I think about my, my last operational deployment in Iraq, where my country asked us to stop the violence between the Sunnis and Shia. And I and and, and so I was I was in the role of a peacemaker. And think about say, I'm not saying, hey, Sunni, you're right, or Shia, you're right. Let's find a ground where we can both uh find some common ground and get to peace. And that's what I was tasked to do 13 years ago. Well, you know what? That's what we need to be doing now. You know, for us to go, hey, you're wrong because you you like Trump or you're wrong because you like Biden is not the answer. We have to come together and 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 because uh, nobody owns uh, nobody owns the complete truth. And if you give me I'm, it's a long winded answer, but I'm going to I love to give this example of I wish I had a quarter to hold up in front of you. But if I had that, imagine that I'm holding a quarter. Well, one of us sees a heads and one of us sees a tail and, and and somebody might see a leading a trailing edge. Now we all know that we're looking at a quarter. We all are telling the truth, but we all see something different. And if we just think about the truth and, and think about it in the terms of perspective from where you come from, and then we negotiate there, I think we can start, uh, start to heal and start to, to make progress. But if but if I'm adamant that you're uh, that I see a heads and I'm the only one that's right and you're adamant that you see tails, we're never going to get anywhere. And, you know, it's all about perspective. I, I totally get it. And this is the thing, because I really didn't know this until 
I actually started traveling abroad. I had the opportunity. I love to go on vacation. I want to put that out there. And right. I go to different countries, have the opportunity to sit down with different people from different nations and just to get their perspective. Now, one of the things that really blew my mind, because most people don't have the opportunity that you and I had the opportunity to go and see the world, was that I'm talking about here was I was surprised to see the people from Europe, people from Australia, people from Greece, they call me to this day and they pay more attention to what we're doing from the election standpoint, more so than some of the people who are here on this on U.S. soil. And so can you just talk about the influence, how much it means to be a U.S. citizen and the influence that we carry and how we truly do lead the world? Yep. You know, if I could uh, if I could try to describe, you know, what it's like to be an American when you travel outside of the country, I will just tell you this. I don't care if you're black, white, green or whatever. There is just something about being an American and they can spot us like uh, like like white on rice. It is we, we stand out. There's a there's a there's a essence that an American has and how we how we move about that just makes us stand out. We're, we're at the top. We're where we're many people want to be or visit or appreciate. Um, that's the kind of burden, I think, the burden and the responsibility that we that we carry. And um, and quite honestly, they depend on they expect that from us. And um and you know you could argue that um, th that that's the burden. You too, too much is given, uh, much is expected, and it's disappointing when we don't uh, we don't step up in that leadership world. I mean, you can sit here and say, uh, you know, we're you know other countries aren't paying their fair share, um, and yeah, if you want to look at it as a transaction, yeah, but. But we're at the top of the food chain. And so, um, you know, that's, that's kind of what goes along with the, uh, with the territory. And Colonel Gaston, I think just having this conversation with you is so refreshing for our audience that may have not known who you were. They for sure know now. Um, to, to continue to remind them, you also recently added actor to your resume. You starred in uh, the Hollywood movie Battleship with Rihanna. Um, how was that role that you played in the movie similar to your life uh, where you portrayed a war injured veteran? Right. Um, so it was, um, so I had never acted before in my life. Um, I never played a tree in a school play, much less acting. <laughs> and, uh, and the reason why I was even selected was um, well, a couple of things that happened, but I was uh, I was the first W amputee to wear two uh, bionic legs in the world, and and I had been uh, I had been a, a small part of a larger article that National Geographic had had published in 2010, talking about the advancements in prosthetics. A lot of it was driven by um, uh, the the government and the military and the injuries that service members were were facing a war obviously provided uh, uh, much needed research and, and resources. And so we were making huge advances and, and I was able to, to, uh, to kind of be a test pilot for some of these uh, uh, devices. And again, uh, um, uh, my photo ended up being a National Geographic and Peter Berg, who was a New York Giants fan, uh, saw the photo and that's when he asked me to, to act in a movie. Um, um, I, I certainly was not, uh, I could identify with the character um, and the journey that, that, uh, um, that he was dealing with. Um, they weren't my personal um, uh, experiences, but, but I, I, you know, when I'm asked this question, what I like to say is, I, I mean, there were probably a hundred, close to a hundred of us in the in the rehab room at Walter Reed when I was recovering in 2007, and I like to feel like my character was was the culmination of many of those men and women that were recovering because I 
you know, I picked up on that. I had conversations with them. I saw the struggles, I, you know, not only going through mine, but, but many of the struggles that, um, that um, my brothers and sisters were going through. And, and, and so that character that I, I got to play was, was really the, the, the culmination of, of, of many of the experiences and uh, that I had and that I experienced as I was recovering. You talked about your picture being in National Geographic, and that's what really led to you being in the role of the movie Battleship. So I'm a photographer, and I caught word that you were a photographer as well. Yep, you had some right. of your pieces exhibited in New York. Yep. You know, so like, how did all of that happen, like, with the interest? So um, I think my dad, had, uh, when my dad was young, had had an interest in photography. But as his, he, he, as his professional life as a, uh, a pharmacist took hold, um, it, it really became a, um, a, a hobby that he didn't ultimately pursue. But I, I, I seemed to kind of gravitate. And I remember... Um, with my graduation present money from high school, I bought my first Nikon, a Nikon FG film camera. And so really from the age of 18 on, it's been a, um, it's been a, a tremendous passion of mine. Um, I think of my camera as almost my writing tablet. You know, many people write or like, they like to read, um, but um, my camera is my canvas. And, and really, um, it was it was sort of private. In fact, you know, other than my immediate family, no one, not many people kind of knew that that was sort of uh, my thing. I mean, I had a camera in my vehicle when I, when I was wounded. I had a camera in all my deployments. And, and I, you know, and, and anybody that was close to me always has known that I've got, you know, multiple cameras uh, typically with me. And so, again, it's it's sort of my way of kind of, when you say, you know, kind of capture a moment, it's not anything that I don't have in mind or I'm going to publish this or I want to share this. It's just about trying to, the art of trying to capture what I feel um, when I see something. And, and that's, you know, ultimately my challenge as a photographer. It's interesting. And, and I was going to ask you, did you ever think of, uh, publishing those those photos that you had. I know Takeo had his book Behind the Mask and, and what inspired him as well was uh, his final years in the NFL, then going out fil filming uh, filming some of the greatest linebackers to ever play in the NFL. He used that and actually published his book Behind the Mask. So what was your hesitancy in not sharing those uh, images with the world? Well, um, I think probably sort of a, uh uncertainty or maybe not uh, thinking it was kind of uh, worthy or good enough. And, um, and so I, 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 I would run into, um, it was, it was an introduction that was made uh, through a, um, a Lieutenant General, uh, a retired Caldwell, a three-star retired three-star general from the class of 1967 at West Point had introduced me to uh, this a woman, Brookie Maxwell, who was um, interested in the in the aspect of arts and healing, and um, and so my photography was was actually and I and I totally gravitated to that idea because I understood how important uh, being able to the photograph was uh, in my healing process, and uh, and so. After I began to show her some of my photography over the years, she's the one that uh, kind of gave me the confidence and convinced me that um, I should share uh, uh, some of my stuff with the world. And you also like to scuba dive. I think that's amazing because I actually went scuba diving in the past. Funny thing about it is uh, I asked our brother Takeo to come out with me. He was scared, so he didn't want to do it, <laughs> you know, but uh what what is it about scuba diving that excites you and do you still have the goal to scuba dive in the red sea uh 
Yes. Well, I love I love the scuba dive, um, and I still have. Uh, boy, you you've done some work there, uh, Tutan. Um, oh yeah, we go behind the mask, baby. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> and 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 so uh, I I uh, in fact I'm hopefully going to a, a dive in the Truck Islands out in the South Pacific uh, next October. Um, so I have been able to dive. I actually earned my advanced open water certification uh, after being wounded. So, you know, we live on land, obviously, and but but three quarters of our planet is covered by water. And I, you know, when I'm down there, I, first of all, I'm, I'm on par with everybody else. You know, my my injuries are still visible, but I'm on I'm on even footing, so to speak. And um, and there's just so much of our planet to see down there and and experience. And and so that's what fascinates me about, you know, being in the water. I actually uh, a couple of years ago, I got a chance to dive in the Atlanta Aquarium with the whale sharks. I know you've probably if you've been to Atlanta, you've probably seen those those massive whales. They're like Greyhound buses, 40 tons. You know, um, and you got to get out of the way because they'll just knock you out of the way. I mean, they, they eat plankton, so they're you know they're not any threat to us. Um, but I, again, it is. Uh, I think it's it's a part of our world that we truly don't appreciate, and and we really got to get the kale down there. So yeah, man. Uh, yeah, Colonel, listen, I, I, I want to jump in because listen, listen, the plus size model talking about. <laughs> I'm afraid. Now, this is the same guy. Halloween just passed a few days ago. This is the same guy who was afraid to go into a scary house. But you, but you a 300 pound man. You a 300 pound offensive lineman. Come on, man. Colonel, Ga Colonel Gaston, I wasn't scared. I was just concerned. All right. <laughs> Why would you pay someone to scare you? That makes absolutely no sense. <laughs> just doesn't all make right. sense. Uh, so look, let's all face our fears. You know what? That's how we grow, right? Maybe we maybe we can start right here in Atlanta, going back to the uh, to the uh, the aquarium. Yeah. I don't know if we can start with them whales though. They, I know yeah. they eat plankton. What you say? They eat plankton, right? Yeah. So they're not. They're not gonna mess with you. Yeah. Yep, it's they, just they, all they, dark meat right here, baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's nothing scared, in there, man. I guarantee you. I think he's scared. We got to get him out to the ocean. That's where it's really at because there's no screaming underwater once you're down there. You can't scream because if you do, you're going to get water in your mouth. Your oxygen tank is going to fall out. You got to be really like, you have to channel your, your inner chi and really be comfortable yeah. with your training because if you don't you'll panic and that's when things start to go wrong a absolutely i mean um i i know when like i like when i haven't dove in a long time i'm really kind of you you gotta you gotta calm yourself down but you get to yeah. you know you get to listen to yourself breathe you know mm -hmm. and it's just mm -hmm. it's just a piece it's peace. it's a yeah. unique piece that uh that comes about you um when you're uh when you're diving it and um you know, I, I skydive, I ski still. And uh, I mean, it's, uh, you know, uh, I, I think it's, you know, I think our life and maximizing our life about being our best is, is taking on, uh, taking on things that, uh, that, uh, that, 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 that make us uncomfortable. That's how we grow. That's how we improve. Yeah. I, I love think. it, but I, I'm not skydiving. No, I'm not doing that. Yeah. <laughs> I'll pass on that one, but I love the fact that you now live in a world of life after the military. And I somewhat live in a world of life after football, playing 15 years. Um, tell us more about your current work and where you find fulfillment today. I know you have a purpose and you always look back to reach and, and talk about some of your colleagues that you serve with, um, Hope for the Warriors in particular. Right. So, um, you know, I, I was always uh, as I was, you know, realizing that my military career was going to come to an end. It was, you know, sometimes I would just say out loud, what am I going to do when I grow up? Because I, you know, wore the uniform. I was I was doing exactly what I was uh, designed to do. And 
but all all good things come to an end. And and you know, I I made a decision to to depart. Uh, you know, I had five more years that I could have stayed in, but I knew I I was ready to move on. And as I thought about you know really wanting to move on, um, I I kind of took uh, I'd say inventory of what was most important to me. And, and the answer to that was having control of, of, of my time, um, being able to, to manage my time and not being, um, you know, driven by, um, you know, the requirements of my life. And so uh, I, I started a company. Um, actually, I started a company called Patriot Strategies, LLC, um, a year just that I was wounded because I had I'd become a, uh, started to become a speaker in demand, and I needed uh, and at the at the recommendation of Army lawyers, they recommended that I start a company so I could keep my uh, government activities separate from my private activities. So so as I uh, exited the military, I I, I took on a. Um, a former West Point uh, football teammate and class of '86 uh, graduate, as a business partner, and 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 uh, to to to, uh, to to try to do government service-based contracts, uh, primarily with the Department of Defense. So that would a be my first way of of continuing to serve. Um, I've I've uh, done some contracts. Uh, I've done some work with wounded warriors and. Really, just the whole um, uh, plethora of, of of activity, and what that's allowed me the freedom to do is to uh, to speak and travel, um, as you said, to Kale, just being able to travel around the world and and engage um, 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 uh, because I have control of my uh, I have control of my life, and then finally, um, the la- I, la- I think last and most important was. I feel like I, you know, I have, um, there's no more mountains for me to climb, so to speak, but it's about giving back and, and giving back to my community. And, and I say, I loosely define my community as a, first the veteran community, African American community, uh, the veteran, a veteran and, and, and the disabled community and using my voice, using my, my platform to be able to make a difference. And, uh, and so working with organizations like uh, uh, Hope for the Warriors, uh, uh, the Gary Sinise Foundation, the Bell Veterans, uh, the Workhouse Out Center here locally, where I'm a board member, um, the things that are, again, are important in my life and where my voice can, you know, make a difference, whether it's maybe raising, raising, funny, raising, money, raising money or funds or, or just... Um, uh, participating. Um, that's, uh, that's really, um, kind of been my, uh, been my direction after the military. And it's so commendable that you continue to use your, your platform, uh, for veterans, for service men and women, uh, and armed forces. What would you say you would like to see the government do more of when these veterans return back from their tours of duty? Right. Well, um, you know, I, I think by and large, um, I mean, the government has the, the kind of the right focus. I mean, our, our Veterans Administration is is a work in progress, and and um, and there's certainly some improvements that uh, that uh, need to continue to happen there. Um, I uh, what I'd like to see is is our government and our private sector um, uh, work. Uh, uh, more closely and more effectively, and and making sure that our veterans uh, transition uh, into the uh, uh, out of the military into the private sector. I think there's a I think there's a huge gap in understanding um, uh, our military, and and what I mean by that is is that I, I, look I know wholeheartedly that our our, our public understands what our military. Uh, is about what, what we do, what we're about, why the purpose of us, but but almost like um, you know tr- trying to 
tell somebody who watches a football game but who doesn't understand what it takes for you to play at the highest level, um, uh, our public doesn't really understand how we're wired in the military. They don't understand. They look at our, our resumes and they and they they you know they say we don't have this, we don't have that. But if you truly understood what we do have, forget the rest of that stuff that we don't have because we're we're going to be a value added to your team. And 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 I think um, um, what I say is. You know, we, we look back at the, at the greatest generation. We readily identify that as the, the, the generation that served in World War II and after that, which is really one of the things that, you know, propelled our country into the role that it is now. And we have an opportunity to kind of capitalize on that, on that talent uh, with the, the more than 17 million people, uh, men and women that have served over the past 20 plus years and um and and capitalize on that town and i i don't know that we're we're truly capitalizing on it as a as a nation because again i don't think we have the the deep understanding and appreciation of of what um our military experience can can bring to their organizations we face the same thing as former athletes often we don't have all the the tools or requirements in the business world for the simple fact we've been playing football for the majority of our life. So it's definitely an uphill battle, but you know, you're, you're, you're on the right path in terms of your advocacy and everything that you are doing for the veterans. So I'm pretty sure they appreciate that. And with veterans day coming up, how do you spend it and how will you be spending it this year? So, um, I, I think I've, uh, I've got a few, uh, I got a few chats um, that I'm doing um, uh, with some organizations that are that are doing uh, 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 holding uh, events with veterans. So, so I guess the the big part is uh, I'm speaking, and really this kind of window that um, I guess starts with you all today uh, through the 11th. Um, uh, I'm I'm uh, communicating with. Um, uh, a, a number of organizations. So, you know, it's as I kind of run through in my mind, I'm, I've got, uh, I've got something I'm doing with the FBI. I've got something I'm doing with a, a high school uh, football team in Wisconsin. Uh, a couple of events uh, with uh, the private sector and, and a, even a, 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 a city and out in uh, Oregon. So um, again, I, I'm, uh, I'm blessed to, the, to, to have a demand for, you know, to have uh, have something that I'm able to share that people uh, want to hear about. So um, and so I, I, I want to, you know, emphasize um, um, uh, the value of our veterans and and our families, uh, because our, our families serve and sacrifice as well. Before we let you go, Colonel Gaston, I got one question and I have a strong tendency to ask a lot of our guests, especially because everybody who we bring on the Behind the Mask podcast show, they're very influential. So we definitely want to be able to help you out as much as we possibly can with spreading your word. But my question to you is, is, well, first of all, stating you have a long list of accomplishments, very, very decorated, highly decorated throughout your career, even life after the military. How would you want to be remembered at the end of the day when it's all over said and done? Um, thank you, a great question to Kale. Uh, Maya Angelou said, um, people won't remember what you said, uh, people won't remember what you did, but they'll remember how you made them feel. And um, if um, if I can be remembered by um, you know treating everybody with dignity and respect and and um, not being perfect but just um, being a good person, I, I would be I would be happy with that. You definitely you definitely get that nod in our books. That's a fact, for sure, Colonel Gaston. We appreciate the time. We know your time is valuable. Thank you. 
and we look forward to talking to you again. And if you're ever in Atlanta, maybe we'll take you down to the aquarium and I'll consider jumping in for scuba. <laughs> What's up, my good people? What's your favorite plus size model, Tuton Reyes? Thank you for joining us on this week's edition of the Behind the Mask podcast, a special Veterans Day edition. And we sit down with retired U.S. Army Colonel Gregory D. Gasson. Make sure you subscribe to the Behind the Mask podcast. Share also with a friend, like, and leave a comment so we can engage a little bit. Also, let us know who you'd like to see on the show. Remember, on the Behind the Mask podcast, there's only one rule. There are no rules. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.